So we're starting a new sermon series today on, on biblical justice. And I told you last week, I'm a little afraid of this. It's, it's such a contested topic, but I've just become more and more convinced that, you know, God calls us as Christians to be salt and light in the world. Um, and part of that is reflecting the, the, and putting on display as a witness the character and beauty of God uh, and bringing forth all the wisdom in, that's in the Bible. And the Bible has so much to say about doing justice and being righteous in the world. Uh, and it is so much more detailed, so much more nuanced, uh, and honestly so much more be- beautiful in its comprehensive nature than any of the secular varieties that are on parade and warring with one another right now in the public sphere. So we kind of have an obligation, I feel, to get at least a little bit of a handle on this so that we can go out and be salt and light in the world. Uh, what that means, though, part of this means that in a four-part sermon series, we're kind of forced, we're just going to scratch the surface on some of this stuff, right? So maybe we'll do a Sunday school uh, on this a little uh, later in the year or early next year. Maybe we'll think of some other ways to maybe go through some really good books together. But today we're going to talk about the concepts, basic like foundational concepts of justice and righteousness. And one of the best books that really goes deeply into that is a book by Tim Keller, who's one of uh, pastors in our own denomination from New York City. Uh, he's written a, a book called Generous Justice. And a lot of what I'm going to say today is, is influenced by that book. And it's a really great book if you want to go deeper into this if you want to look that up um, on your own at home. Uh, Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just by Tim Keller. And so now let's get into it. I'm going to, we're going to take a whirlwind tour through the prophets of Israel as they talk about biblical justice and biblical righteousness. And then we're going to break those things down as to what they mean uh, as we go through the sermon. So if you would please stand out of respect For the reading of God's word, out of respect for the speaker who is God himself speaking to us through his word, Uh, let's now listen intently together to God's inerrant word. I'm not going to call all these out as I go, but this is from Micah chapter 6, Zechariah chapter 7, Proverbs 31, Jeremiah 9, Amos chapter 5. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness? And to walk humbly with your God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and the helpless and see that they get justice. And this is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me, 
and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I was talking a couple of days ago, a friend of mine, about how when they were newer in the Christian faith, they were going to this church that was preaching through Romans, and they got to Romans 9, and he was just surprised how the pastor was like dancing around all these really clear parts of Romans 9 that explained um, really clearly that God is the one who chooses people for salvation. Uh, it was super clear in the text, and, and my friend was like, I don't you know, I just didn't understand why it was they were dancing around this, why it was that they were, you know, like, just not like presenting it as it was, but trying to explain it away or like make it say not what it really said. And I've noticed that a, a lot, of, in a lot of different, in a lot of different ways, not just people trying to explain away Romans 9, uh, but I've also, I've had friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses, and I present to them like really clear passages in the Bible that say uh, Jesus is God, that it really presents the deity of Jesus, and watch them just glaze over and reject it, or look into it and read different things into the text, and, and, and just mis- misunderstand what it says, and walk away like that. I've, you know, I've worked with, this happens a lot around sexual ethics too about Christians who kind of get, in the, uh, get, get, get stuck in, in the sexual immorality or living together before they're married and, and having all kinds of explanations about why, you know, the Bible doesn't really say what it says and not really ever thinking uh, that it's, it's dishonoring God or presenting a distorted image of God's character and beauty and light into the world. And the same thing with Christians, especially who suffer from same-sex attraction. I've had very smart people, brilliant people who are able to think clearly about so many different things, but when it comes, came to the Bible, when they were presented with passages that clearly talk about God's intention and design and creation and how we're called to give Him thanks and honor Him as God by living according to those things, uh, they, were, they glazed over it or came up with all these ex- different excuses as to why I didn't say what it said. They weren't able to see it and walked away. And so, you know, I've gone through that with, with you know, different people as a pastor, as I've been counseling and pastoring people. And, and the one thing that always struck me whenever I was in a situation like that was not just the sadness of it, but I also, there was always this voice in the back of my head that says, I wonder where I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> we used to have a professor uh, in my Bible college, and he, he would always ask this question, how much heresy can you hold and still be orthodox, right? Assuming that, kind of insinuating that everybody, 
Everybody gets something wrong. Everybody's got a blind spot. Everybody has something. There's something that we are not getting right. And so I'm always wondering in those situations, I wonder it is, what, are we, what am I missing? What am I not getting right? But it's so hard to consider that, right? Especially with our tradition where we are like, we are people who have literally spilt blood to protect the gospel. I don't know if any other tradition can claim as much spilt blood of people who have been so intent on studying God's word and understanding what it says and protecting that with our very lives. Where, where could we possibly be missing something when we're so intent on understanding the word and understanding what it says? And so one way to like get a glimpse of where we might be missing something is to look at and listen to people who are outside of our bubble, outside of our time and place. Uh, people who are outside of our lived experience, outside of our cultural norms, because uh, Christians, uh, you know, because, and sometimes even unbelievers, because oftentimes they'll be able, when they challenge us, to present a blind spot or something that we're not seeing. And so that's really one of the best ways to figure out where our blind spots are, but it's also maybe the hardest way. It's also maybe the hardest way, because like it or not, when we talk about what we believe at a core level, we are not having, and this is a big lesson I learned as a pastor, man. I used to think we would have intellectual debates, rational debates about doctrine, about you know, what the Bible said, and then people would be like, oh, wow, I never saw that logical angle. I'm totally on board. That's not how it is. People have emotional investments in the things they believe, and so whenever something you believe is challenged, it's super easy. It's really, really easy to get unhinged and start defending what you believe to be true before you take the time to listen and give an honest evaluation of what someone's saying to you. And not only that, I mean, I've seen over and over again in others and in myself, we have this, the, this amazing ability to read into the text what's not there and to glaze over the stuff that is in order to protect those emotionally held beliefs. And so... Being challenged is really, really hard. Really, really hard. And so I told you last week, here's my big goal. <laughs> my big goal for this sermon series on biblical justice is that I would offend everyone equally. <laughs> because then I know I've achieved some sort of balance, right? <laughs> uh, the Bible, listen, if, if God never contradicts what you believe, that's not God. That's the God of your imagination. And so, for all of us, no matter where we stand on the spectrum of thought, the Bible is going to contradict some of the things we believe. And that's going to be hard. So, my goal is, I hope that if we achieve a, a balanced and biblical view of biblical justice, no matter where you are on the spectrum, something is going to make you upset. <laughs> it's going to get hot in here, right? And not just because of the sun. So... I want to ask everybody as we go through this whole thing, let's have this one verse in mind as our main filter, as our main, our main verse together. Let's be quick to listen, let's be slow to speak, and let's be even slower to ang anger. Let's meditate upon these things and see if they are not, in fact, really true. Uh, and I welcome any interaction from anything I say over the next four weeks. I would love to, you know, talk with you in person, go email exchange, whatever. Uh, 
duel at noon, whatever you guys want to do, you know, we're good. <laughs> Let's contemplate together what God says about justice so that we can be better light and more, more like salt in the world. Amen? Okay. So first thing we're going to do is tackle some foundational concepts from the Old Testament, what the Old Testament says about justice and about righteousness. Next week, we're going to get more into New Testament stuff, but today we're going to focus mostly on that. These two ultra-important words when the Bible talks about biblical justice. And justice uh, and righteousness. So first, let's look at biblical, let's look at the idea, the concept of justice. Now we saw from uh, that passage in Micah that it's not a, an isolated or an abstract concept. It's presented as, an, as a verb, really, to do justice. And the word, the word in Hebrew is called mish, is mishpat, which means it's, it's something that we call uh, restorative justice, which means it's the kind of justice that makes things right that have gone wrong. When we talk about righteousness in a minute, it's a, different, a little bit different kind of justice. But the first kind of justice is justice that's restorative. The basic meaning is to treat all people equity, equi with equity. Now, we are, maybe you think just hear justice and you think immediately just negatively or punitive justice or the justice system or punishing criminals or making sure that people are punished fairly for their crimes. And that's part of it. There is a negative aspect to that. Leviticus 24 warns Israel to have the same mishpat, the same justice or the same rule of law for the foreigner as for the native. Not, it's calling us to have the same justice system so that everyone gets the same justice, the same fairness, the same, uh, uh, they are treated the same by the justice system, right? But there's also a positive meaning of it, which means securing rights for everybody in the same way. That's what doing justice means, biblically. And whenever these things are mentioned, we look at, you know, one of the passages that we read Zechariah 7, Proverbs 31 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant, the poor. This one theologian calls that the quartet of the oppressed. <laughs> Those four categories of people in a, in a, in a pre-modern society were the ones who had the least amount of social power and they were the most likely to either be oppressed by the powerful systems and people in the world or to be neglected or to just fall through the cracks. Uh, and so God has, has called a special attention to them, a special attention to care for those categories of people in our culture who are most likely uh, to either be oppressed, to be vulnerable, to be neglected, to fall through the cracks. And all inherent in all those things, the Bible gives causes of poverty. We can't go deeply into this, but it's not simplistic. When the Bible talks about the causes of poverty and the causes of oppression, it's not simplistic where, 
on one side, you know, people say that, uh, all, that, that it's the rich and it's the powerful who are all to blame for the cause of the poor and the oppressed and all the responsibilities on government. And the other side says that all the blame is on the poor. All the blame is on the oppressed because they lack character and so therefore all the responsibility is on the poor and the oppressed to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. But the Bible gives a more nuanced view. There's lots of reasons why people fall into poverty. Lots of people why people become oppressed. Maybe natural disaster. Maybe death. Maybe violence. Maybe the outcome of war. Or war-like circumstances within a culture. Uh, Maybe it's oppression by the powerful. Maybe it's just neglect by the powerful. And maybe, it's, maybe it is character, and maybe it is personal responsibility. However, the Bible presents all these things as not separate. They, come, they form feedback loops where oppression, violence causes oppression, oppression causes despair, despair causes poor choices, poor choices develops poor habits, poor habits develops bad character. And all these things work together. So it's not so simple as just to pull one of those things out. It's way more difficult. Uh, it's way more complex to think about how the oppressed become or, or, or the vulnerable in any, any culture become vulnerable. And so here's a summary, summary of doing justice. Is that God is, uh, is giving people true equity, their rightful due as fellow image bearers of God, whether in punishment, acquittal, protection, or care, without being swayed by class, race, power, influence, prestige, wealth, or their lack thereof. And we know that, right? It's not like super news to us, but here's the thing. In the ancient Near East, (laughs) in all the cultures that surrounded Israel, the gods were associated with the rich and the powerful. And yet only in Israel did God go out of his way to identify himself as the God of the widow, of the orphan, of the immigrant, of the poor. Uh, in all the other cultures, uh, you know, around surrounding Israel, you had to be wealthy and powerful really to have access to the priests and the kings to really be in God's favor. And it was so obvious to everybody that if you were wealthy and powerful and had strong position, the gods must favor you. And if you were poor... You must not be favored by God. But in Israel alone, even in the sacrificial system, you were to bring a bull or a lamb, and then God would say, but if you can't afford those, come with a handful of wheat. (laughs) Come on, show up with a handful of grain, if that's all you can afford. And it was teaching Israel that even the poorest of the poor had direct access to God, and, and they had... And God was extending his grace and mercy to them. And so when God identifies himself over and over and over again in the Old Testament as the God of the poor, the God who delights in justice and righteousness, the God who protects and oversees and shelters these vulnerable classes, man, we got to take that seriously because it's a radical departure from what everybody else in the ancient world thought. Uh, And what that means is to neglect this kind of justice, to neglect 
true equity, making sure everyone has their rightful due, to neglect, making sure everyone uh, is punished equally, to, make sh to, to neglect these things of justice. It's not just, it, it is to neglect, it's not just a neglect or it's not just a, a lack of charity or a lack of concern. It's, it's dishonoring God as the God of the poor. And it distorts his character in the world. It distorts who he is, his mercy, his love, his compassion, his seeking out the least and the lost. We're supposed to model that. We're supposed to image that in the world by doing these things. And when we don't, it distorts the image of God in the world. In Deuteronomy, Israel was called to, to obey God's laws in these things so that all the nations of the world would see this just society and see how they cared for even the least of them and be so amazed and mystified by it that they would wonder more about and glorify Israel's God. And so it's not just a lack of charity. It's not just an optional thing that we're supposed to do that we'll get around to. When we don't do it, it dishonors God. It distorts His character in the world. And let me bring that out a little bit more by looking at our next point, which is the biblical concept of righteousness. Righteousness, Hebrew, Hebrew word, tzedakah, tzedakah. It really means, it really means being just. It's a, it's, when we think of righteousness, what do we think of? We must totally either think of the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift, or we think of righteousness in the terms of, of personal piety towards God. Our, you know, our keeping ourselves pure, uh, not sinning, uh, devotion practices. Um, don't we? I mean, I do. Whenever I think of righteousness, I always think about like stuff I do to honor or worship God, and it's usually like directly between me and God. But in the, in the Bible, it doesn't talk about it like that. It does talk about it like that, okay? But there's also this huge social dimension to it. It's really about right relationships with other people. With the people, I mean, what is sin? Sin is sinning against the people usually closest to you. Amen? <laughs> and so righteousness is... is, is is positively, it's, it's what's called primary justice. It's the kind of justice that keeps things right. If justice or mishpat is the kind of justice that makes things right that went wrong, primary justice or righteousness is keeping things right. One theologian defines it as, as saying, uh, where am I? Those theologians define it as those two different big categories. And so righteousness is about being in right relationship with God, recognizing that as a gift, and then out of, out of, out of a sense of, of, gra of gratitude and awe, seeking to make all your other relationships right in the world. And the better we do that, the better, we do, the better we're able to do primary justice, the less there's a need for restorative justice. And so the Bible talks a lot 
about righteousness or being just. Uh, and here's a great, a great example, one of maybe the clearest, is in the book of Job, where Job talks about Israeli ethics, what it meant, what it looked like, what it, what, what it looked like in real life, and what uh, Israelites were called to do, how they, how they were called to live uh, in, in a way that was just in the sight of God and the sight of men. Listen to what, listen to what Job says. He says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness, tzedakah, as my clothing and justice, mishpat, was my robe and my turban. See how they're closely related there. I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. I was father to the needy. Those are all righteousness. It's all primary righteousness. He's going out of his way to be a blessing to people, to keep people lifted up. Uh, I took the case of the immigrant. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. That's mishpat. That's restorative justice. He's making right things that have gone wrong. And here's the kicker. Job says goes on from that point to say that if, if he ever failed to do any of these things, if he ever used his social influence and privilege to take advantage of the quartet of the oppressed, or if he ever failed to use his influence when he had the opportunity to do so, to secure their rights or to lift them up, he says this, then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. And here's one example to bring clarity to that from Ezekiel. Ezekiel says about the just man or woman, he says, He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. Did you get that? He, con he, he, he juxtaposes those. And the obvious meaning is that to fail, when we fail, when it's within our power to do so, to provide food for the hungry and provide clothing for the naked, it's not just a lack of charity or a lack of love. God considers it to be robbery. It's a violation of the commandment. It's a sin. And so why? Why is this... Why is, this so, why is this so serious? Why is this to neglect this? Why is it such a big sin? It's because this, because unlike Marxism that assumes that property is all collective and unlike capitalism that assumes that property is all private, the Bible cuts an even more beautiful pathway where it says that if you have resources, if you have influence, if you have power, part of that, yes, is because you've been industrious. You've worked really hard. If you built a business, you really built that thing, okay? Yes. However, also a big part of it is where you were born, the time you were born, the family you were born into, the opportunities you had the providence that God laid out in front of you to put you in that position. And therefore, 
we have an obligation, a grateful responsibility as stewards of God's wealth to make sure that we use a substantial part of that after we've taken care of our family and our responsibilities to then use a substantial part of our money, our time, our talents to do justice and righteousness in the world, to make sure that we advantage not just ourselves but our communities. There's a great summary of all this. One theologian said that the wicked are all about disadvantaging the community to advantage themselves, whereas the righteous are all about disadvantaging themselves in order to advantage the community. Not as a way to gain favor with God, not out of guilt, but as an act of grateful worship, putting the character of God on display so that then that's then used by God, used by the Spirit to create bridges for the gospel. What did Jesus say? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your gospel preaching and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. That's what I glaze it in. Whenever I read this passage, I always, that's my glaze. I insert that idea. I do it all the time. I've done it for, you know, 15 years, 15 years now, right? But that's not what it says. What does it say? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, your justice, your righteousness in the world, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Creates opportunities, creates bridges, draws people into the kindness and beauty of God and gives us opportunities to preach the gospel. Now here, here's the big kicker, right? How, this, when I said on the introduction, I said what's helpful to us is to look at and, and, and hear people that are outside of our bubble, right? <laughs> people who are outside of our cultural experience, people who are other Christians who are maybe outside of our tradition um, or outside of our, you know, whatever, who are able to point these things out to us where we are, are lacking in them, right? So let's look outside the bubble. Let's look at, first of all, that blight on orthodoxy, that awful liberal theologian John Calvin, and see what he has to say about this. Calvin, when he came back to Geneva, everybody in the church, their idea was that, that it was the state's business to take care of the poor and take care of the oppressed and to fight for their rights. And Calvin said, no, that's the deacon's business. And he, even, he said, if a church fails to, to live up to this responsibility as a grateful act of worship to God, uh, to engage in justice and in righteousness, that it is a, a church 
It is a church that is well-ordered and after the doctrine of the gospel. And if not, we're not. Calvin. Well, let's look at that in this other uh, liberal theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who wrote uh, in a treatise called The Duty of Charity to the Poor Explained and Enforced, where in typical Jonathan Edwards style, he uh, countered 111 objections for doing so, right? <laughs> a side note, that Jonathan Edwards was able to write so eloquently and de- in such detail about the church's obligation to free the oppressed while at the same time owning slaves tells us how insidious and how easy it is for the values uh, and the ideals of the culture to influence how we read the Bible. And I guarantee you, if it happened to Edwards, it's happening to us. There's just no way it couldn't be. So how did this, how did this happen? Okay, here's some guys outside our bubble. How did it happen to where, you know, it's not that we are, I'm just talking about our tradition, right? It's not that we are devoid of charity, that we are devoid of doing justice, that we're devoid of righteousness, that we don't do anything for the poor. But in comparison, we do, uh, in comparison to our forefathers, and in comparison to how the Bible lays it out, we do very little. And I think we just got to fess up to that. How did that happen? There's a lot of reasons why that happened, but let me, let me give you one big one. In the early, in the late 19th century, there were some pastors who noticed the deplorable working conditions of immigrants, the immigrant poor, the widow, the fatherless uh, in New York City and other places. They took these things seriously and began to really work for the improvement of their conditions. However, they also at the same time happened to be the pastors who were being pressured by new cultural ideas and, and uh, to, dis- to disregard, to jettison, to forget about all the important doctrines of the Christian faith, like the atonement of Jesus, virgin birth, the deity of Christ, basically just rewriting the Christian faith. And over time, they became so concerned with doing good in the world and, so, and, and, and jettisoning the, the, the lifeblood of the Christian faith uh, that they just became all about doing righteousness in the world and became called the social gospel. The gospel is really all about us liberating the poor and bringing the kingdom of God and righteousness to people here and now and nothing about the atonement for our sins and the wrath of God and what our real problem is. And on the other hand, the people started to battle them and battle for the, and contend for the faith uh, and dig in and really defend the gospel at the same time, began to see doing good works as something that the social gospel did and they backed away from it in a knee-jerk reaction. And then a hundred years later, we have these polarized sections of the church where one side participates in all the justice and righteousness that the Bible demands, and yet then when they get the attention of people to the goodness of God, they give them a gospel that leads them straight into hell. And on the other side, we have a section of the church that has been so faithful in protecting the intellectual property of the gospel and and articulating and maintaining the articulation of right doctrine in the world and yet forgetting about all the things that make that message palatable and relevant and, 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 and all the things that bring the knowledge of God's beauty and kindness to the world so that becomes ineffective. 
I think it's satanic. You read it all through the book of Revelation about how Satan's purpose is to divide and diminish and flood the church with misinformation and create all these divisions. And so what's the answer? The answer is the answer is both, right? Just because somebody does something for bad motives doesn't mean we can't do it for good motives. And so the answer really is that the justice of Jesus it makes us people it makes us people who seek justice for others. The Bible says this is the last point. Bible says that Jesus disadvantaged himself in a massive way to come and rescue us from the oppression and the tyranny of Satan, of sin, and of death. It says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He wasn't so concerned with staying in all the glory and beauty and splendor of heaven. He was more concerned with what the Bible calls the joy that was set before him, which was us, a people that he would rescue from oppression, that would worship him. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so another Scottish minister following in the footsteps of Jonathan Edwards in the 19th century, he addressed all of our objections about serving the poor and giving ourselves in this substantial way the Bible calls for by saying this. He would say, objection one, my money is my own. The answer is, well, Christ may have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own, and then where would we have been? <laughs> Objection two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection three, the poor will abuse it. They'll take all this money and go buy 40s at the liquor store. And Christ might have said the same. Oh, yes, with far greater truth, Jesus knew that you would trample his blood, that you would use his grace to, as a big excuse to sin more, and yet he still gave his blood for, you, for us. But here's the thing, don't, Please do not mistake this for a guilt trip. This is not trying to make us feel really guilty about, oh gosh, we're awful. Oh, we suck. Oh, Jesus, we're worms. What can we do to be better people? It's just not about guilt. What this is calling us to is to be grateful, to recognize, yeah, that was our condition. We were absolute, in absolute abject spiritual poverty. And in that poverty, we were locked in patterns of sin that we could not escape. And Jesus disadvantaged himself and gave us, gave, left his wealth so that we could be rich in this great transfer, took our sins, gave us his righteousness. And the point is to, to give us a, a, you know, a right estimation of our condition of where we were, but so that we would be grateful for what we've been pulled out of and be so 
overwhelmed by gratitude to Jesus, overwhelmed by the beauty of the character of God and what He's done for us, and so dead certain of His promises for us that we would naturally just become people who would disadvantage ourselves for the, for the good of our community. Let me tell you, let me give you an example. Let me tell you how I got my first car. And we'll close with this. My first car was an Oldsmobile Jetstar 88. Oh, yeah. Man, that thing was sweet, right? And it's barely, I think I was 17. And to get a hold of a car like that when you were 17, I mean... It was sweet, right? It was a super nice car. And how did I get this car? I got this car because one of my roommates, who's out here, he's from the East Coast, he came out here, he's living in San Diego, and he got, he ended up uh, like reconciling with his dad, and, uh, and his dad was really wealthy, and he ended up getting to go back East, and he had a new job waiting for him and a whole new life. Uh, and he was going to have like such an amazing life when he went back East that all the stuff that he had back over here in San Diego was just kind of like, almost like a nuisance, right? It was so much easier to just get rid of it and get on a plane and go to his, you know, go to his new life that he was just giving all this stuff away. I just didn't really have a big concern for it. So I ended up with the Jetstar 88. And that's kind of like, that's really what this is calling us to. It's calling us to saying, look, man, you've been reconciled with your father, <laughs> you know? Uh, you have a life that is just around the corner that is so much more beautiful and wonderful and so much more, it is so much more than what we are experiencing right now that we're called to be people who believe that so much that we put all our, all our faith in that, we put all our trust in that by not trying to live at the top end of our income earning potential by not trying or not like inadvertently buying into the values of the culture so that, you know, it's all about the stuff that we acquire, the consumerism that's constantly pushed on us, but instead to be people that are so convinced of what God has promised us in Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth that those things are almost like nuisances to us. <laughs> We can just freely like kind of give stuff away and, you know, just like bite our time because we're getting on a plane and we're going to a whole new life. Amen. And that's the truth. We got a whole new life ahead of us. We have more than we could possibly even imagine and what God calls us to do is to act out that gratitude by serving these people that he has a deep concern and compassion for and to do so in a way that's as generous as we are able to as fallen creatures that is as generous to them as God has been to us. And in that, we're going to see a little later on in our series that joy and happiness and everything we're trying to get from grabbing stuff naturally flows out of that principle. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word cuts across all lines. That we as people are, as fallen creatures are just necessarily unbalanced and we tend to gravitate towards 
one thing or the other. And Lord, we thank you that your word is able to give us an even more beautiful picture than we are able to grasp ourselves. And so, Lord, we thank you for showing us ultimate justice in Jesus for a whole world. Lord, for all of your people, every one of us guilty of innumerable sin, that you've cleansed us from that by the death of Christ. And not only that, but you have given us the most valuable possession in all the universe, which is the righteousness of Jesus. And so that we even now stand before you as children who are loved and accepted. So Lord, we pray that the gospel would be so real to us, not just something that we maintain uh, in textbooks, but something that is so real to us in our everyday life that would necessarily just flow out of us in love and justice and righteousness in the world. And the world would see that and see how you really are and be drawn to it. We pray this in Jesus' name.